1: Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith.
0: You are groping in the midnight dimness of a gigantic department store, and suddenly you realize that you're not alone, but a hundred eyes are glaring at you from the shadows, a hundred hands reaching for your throat, and your most urgent desire is to escape.
1: So begins the 1947 broadcast of Evening Primrose on CBS Radio's Escape. The script for the show was based on a short story by John Collier. Like The Vanishing Lady from the last episode, Evening Primrose is an adventure that's set in a supposedly safe and silent place, the midnight dimness of an urban department store. This is my second podcast that examines one of Escape's indoor adventures. And if the last episode took us to a place that's symbolic of the Industrial Revolution and the birth of mass production, the Paris Industrial Exposition, this episode takes us to the other side of that economic system, to the spaces of mass consumption. As with The Vanishing Lady, we're going to listen adventurously to Evening Primrose, with an ear to the toxic materials we might find there. This is a reminder that environmental issues don't just concern wilderness spaces, but homes, offices, and stores. Escape's adaptation of Evening Primrose begins, like The Vanishing Lady, with a frame story not found in the original version. The frame story begins when Sam comes home from a night of bowling to find that his wife, Sadie, is upset.
2: Sam, I'm glad
3: you're home. Hey, hey, what's the matter? Oh, it's terrible. You gotta do something, Sam. Whoa, 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 what's terrible? It's this. Just look at this. What's terrible about that? Looks like an ordinary pad of paper to me.
2: It just did. That's just what I thought. But it's got writing in it. It's awful.
3: Oh, wait a minute. Maybe you better tell me what this is all about.
2: Well... Today I went shopping down at Bracey's department store. Huh? I, I needed some writing paper, so I picked this up. And it, it was on top of the pile and bought it and brought it home. But tonight when I opened it, I found it's got writing in it.
3: Well, that's nothing so terrible. Just take it back tomorrow and make him give you a new one.
2: Oh, no, you don't understand. It's what's written in it that's so terrible.
3: What
1: do you mean, what's written in it?
2: Here, you gotta read it. Oh, same. No, no, right now, read it.
1: As Sam reads, a dissolve shifts our audio position from Sam to the author of the journal, A poet named and Charles I Snell. Am free. Really free.
0: free.
3: Yes, yes,
1: I, I am, am
0: free. free at last. The world is an intolerable place for a poet. I was broke, starving at my wits' end. And then I had a brilliant idea. I would escape to a place where I had no need to earn a living where I could write to my heart's content in peace and security.
1: Snell aims to devote his life to writing poetry, and so he hides in the department store, sleeping through the day and emerging at night so that he can have everything he wants, and And it's it's all all free. free. Absolutely free. Charles Snell is not the typical adventure hero. In a previous episode, I described how adventure stories shifted from featuring valiant swashbucklers to post-war anti-heroes like Danny Quinn from Port Royal. You little jerk. Charles Snell is neither a swashbuckler nor a noir-esque anti-hero, but instead embodies a variation on a mid-century social type, the beachcomber. Beachcombers are worth mentioning in a discussion of Escape because they're central characters in six episodes of the series. These were all white male characters who embark upon a life of scavenging along the tropical beaches where cargo washed ashore. In their connection to a network of global shipping, Beachcomber's stories are related to the infrastructural adventures I described in previous podcasts. Beachcombers seem to have been popular heroes in part because they could function as objects of fantasy for middle-class men feeling stifled by post-war conformity. Consider the pilot episode of a television series called The Beachcomber from 1962. The show begins with lines that sound an awful lot like the opening of Escape, delivered by the star of the show, Cameron Mitchell, as he looks directly into the camera.
0: Have you ever had the urge to uh, kick over the traces and get out of the rut you're in? Do you ever dream of adventuring beyond the immediate horizon, of disappearing from the busy humdrum world and maybe going to some wonderfully romantic place to live out the rest
1: of your life. Mitchell plays the character John Lackland, who takes a white-collar job after serving in the military in World War II. Though he's rising in his profession, he has a crisis when he sees his reflection in the mirror and realizes that he is half-dead in the prime of life. When his boss tells him he's being made a partner in the firm, Lackland announces his resignation. I quit. The boss asks for a reason. Lackland opens the office window, looks into the distance, and says, I gotta find somebody. Find somebody? Who? Me. This television pilot shows us how Beachcomber characters could be compelling heroes for audiences who might be feeling confined by post-war norms. Notice how the fantasy here hinges on the escape from the indoors, from the confinement of the office, signaled by the opening of the office window. This is where the hero of John Collier's Evening Primrose is such an interesting variation on the type. Charles Snell is a poet who rejects the working world not by taking an ocean liner to Tahiti, but by becoming a scavenger in the metropolitan spaces of consumption. As we'll see, in the process, the story complicates that distinction between the indoors and the outdoors. During his first night in Bracey's, Snell sets up camp in a dusty corner of the carpet department. He steals a pad of stationery and begins to keep a journal. Venturing out into the store... Snell is startled by the approach of a night watchman. I was in the Salon
0: moderne. Quickly, I seized a mink coat from a hanger, draped it about my shoulders, and stood stock still. I could have reached out and touched him, but he passed by without so much as a glance. I started to smile, but the smile froze on my lips. there was someone else here I was looking straight into a pair of eyes large flat luminous inhuman eyes peering at me from among the mrs. tailored suits a dozen feet away they belonged to a creature dressed as a man but he was as pale as a creature found under a stone his hands hanging motionless at his sides looked more like the fins on a fish than human hands and then he spoke
4: Not bad, for a
0: beginner. I'm i sorry, I didn't know anybody else uh, lived here. Oh, yes. We live here. It's delightful. We? Yes, all of us. Don't you see? Look around you.
1: Snell soon finds himself surrounded by a crowd of spectral, semi-human creatures. They came swarming thick around me, pale, thin, wispy, moving
0: silently, fluttering like gauze in the wind, whispering. How raw
4: he looks.
1: Who is he?
4: As coarse as the sun. What is he doing here?
1: In the short story, Collier describes the Bracys colony in such a way that he blurs the line between human and non-human bodies, and between natural and built environments. He writes that Roscoe's hands resemble fins, that the inhabitants of the store are like the nocturnal creatures that creep out under the artificial blue moonlight in the zoo, and that their laughter is like the stridulation of the ghosts of grasshoppers. In one amazing passage, Collier compares the department store to a vivarium, A vivarium is a glass enclosure, like an aquarium, but for plants and animals that live on the land. Collier describes the sensation of peering into a vivarium and first just seeing bark, pebbles, a few leaves, nothing more, but then suddenly a stone breathes. It's actually a toad. And then you notice a chameleon and a snake and a praying mantis among the leaves. The whole, he writes, suddenly seems to be crepitant with life. It's a kind of dizzy sensation where you can't tell the difference between what's alive and what isn't. Snell has this same sensation when he's looking at racks of ready-to-wear clothes and perfume counters in the department store, where it's consumer goods that seem to be transforming into living beings. It's like a surreal enactment of Karl Marx's concept of the commodity fetish. This is a resonant theme for our current ecological moment. Amitav Ghosh writes that one of the uncanniest effects of the Anthropocene is to renew our awareness of the agency and consciousness that humans share with other beings, and even with the planet itself. The strange inhabitants of Bracey's assume that Snell is a burglar, and they make cryptic threats to send for, for the, the Dark, dark men.
4: men. Yes, send for the Dark Men.
1: The Dark Men. Snell insists that he's a poet and has come to the store to renounce the outside world. And hearing this, their attitude changes.
2: Why then, he's come over to us.
4: He's just like us.
3: He's come over to us. A poet.
4: She must meet Mrs. Pent.
3: Yes,
4: Mrs. Vanderbend. She's coming now.
0: I followed their eyes toward the balcony. There, coming down the wall like an ancient spider, clambered an old lady, wrinkled and cracked and emaciated. She must have been at least 80, a shadowy matriarch, and the... Things around me bowed and scraped as she reached the floor and floated toward us. She tells Snell,
4: I am quite the oldest inhabitant here, Mr. Snell. Three mergers and a complete rebuilding. But they didn't get rid of me. I have been here, Mr. Snell, ever since the terrible times of the 80s. I was a young girl then. A beauty, they say. And poor papa lost his money. Braces meant a lot to a young girl in those days. So when I wasn't able to have a charge account, I came here for good. That's better than a charge account. I was quite alarmed when others began to come after the crash of 1907... And, of course, all our dear young people came in 1929. Their poor papas jumped from skyscrapers. They couldn't bear to be without charge accounts, either.
1: The colony at Bracey's are refugees of the crises of economic boom and bust and the gaunt addicts of mass consumption. And so the story starts to be legible as an allegory of the Anthropocene, or... Maybe this story aligns better with critics who say that the term should be the capitalocene, understood to be an era that's been brought on by the ravages of capitalism. But we should also pay attention to the way the Bracey's community sounds. They're set apart by the use of vocal filters and a certain theatrical style of performance.
4: She must meet Mrs. Vanderbend.
1: Yes, Mrs. Vanderbend. This sets the inhabitants off as different non-normative, somehow out of time. And when we combine that with the fact that they're a community of affiliation, not of family or kinship, they start to become legible as a queer community. I'm drawing here on academic work that describes queer uses of time and space. That is, uses that are defined in opposition to the family, heterosexuality, and reproduction. the nocturnal community at Bracey's inhabit the strange temporalities, imaginative life schedules, and eccentric economic practices that are characteristic of queer time. There's one notable exception among the people at Bracey's, Mrs. Vanderpant's maid, Ella. Ella came to the store with her mother when she was just six years old. She got lost in the store and fell asleep. The colony found her and made her Mrs. Vanderpant's maid. Ella is younger than the other inhabitants at Bracy's and more human in appearance, and Snell is instantly smitten with her. He writes that she is... The pearl of this remote, fantastic cave. Mrs. Vanderpant invites Snell to attend the performance of a tragic comedy entitled... Love in Shadowland, that was written by a resident of the store named Mrs. Bilby. A colony of people who live in another store are coming to the play, making it a major social event. When Ella asks for permission to attend the play, her request is brusquely rejected, and Mrs. Vanderpant reminds Ella that she belongs in the basement with the garbage cans. Snell is shocked by the social hierarchies in the colony and the disdain that its members have not only for Ella, but for the night watchman.
2: Odious vulgar creature, you reeks of the coarse sun. Oh,
1: come now, Mrs. Bilby. Mrs. Vanderpant declares that both are not our sort at all. Snell can't stop thinking about Ella, and he feigns a case of the hiccups during Mrs. Bilby's play so that he can sneak down to the basement. There he finds Ella sobbing among the garbage and rats. Ella warns him about the Dark Men.
5: You know how people live in all the stores, at Gimbel's and Bloomingdale's Yes, yes, I know. Well, the Dark Men live at The Undertaker's. Good heavens. And whenever someone dies or breaks the rules, or when a burglar gets in and sees these people and might tell, they send for the Dark Men. How horrible. They put the body in the butcher shop in the food department. And then the dark dark men come. I saw them once. It was terrible. What do they do? They go in where the dead person is. They have wax with them and all sorts of things. And when they're gone, there's just a wax model left on the counter. Then our people put a frock on it or a bathing suit and mix it up with the other wax models in the windows. And nobody ever knows. Ella,
0: you mean all these dummies around us? Oh,
5: not all of them. But if you displease these people, the same thing will happen to you.
1: The revelation about the Dark Men reinforces the show's suggestion that there's something threatening and dangerous about indoor consumer environments. Remember from the previous episode that we're interested now in some of Escape's indoor adventures and how they might relate to what environmental critics call toxic discourse the fear of a poisoned world. Toxic consumer environments were part of the critique in Rachel Carson's famous environmental blockbuster, Silent Spring. And when she wrote about everyday encounters with dangerous chemicals, she included supermarkets where deadly materials could be found in kitchen shelf paper, insect spray, floor polish, gardening supplies, and the chemical residues on food.
4: So thoroughly has the age of poisons become established that anyone may walk into a store and without questions being asked, buy substances of far greater death-dealing power than the medicinal drug for which he may be required to sign a poison book in the pharmacy next door.
1: The strange and troubling practices of the Dark Men start to nudge the story into the domain of toxic discourse by hinting at one of the deadly materials that might be found in department stores like Bracey's. Ella's story about the Dark Men forges a connection between department stores and mortuaries. What these locations have in common is the presence of formaldehyde. Formaldehyde is a toxic chemical that's used both in the preservation of corpses and in the preparation of department store items like pillowcases, drapes, carpets, hair treatments, and wrinkle-free clothing. By one account, department stores can smell pungently of formaldehyde. The chemical began to enter consumer and domestic spaces in the 1940s with the invention of formaldehyde-based particle board, which is found in walls, cupboards, and furniture. It's also used in the treatment of carpets, drapes, linens, and permanent press clothing. Remember how Snell's first encounter with Roscoe was at a rack of ready-to-wear clothes?
4: Not bad for a beginner.
1: With its racks of ready-to-wear clothing, ghostly denizens of the funeral home, and bodies transformed into mannequins, Evening Primrose smells pungently of formaldehyde. Let's return now to the scene between Charles and Ella in the basement of the department store, where Ella confesses her desire to escape from Bracey's and see the outside world again. The sensitive poet falls more deeply in love with her. My mind is filled with her, I dream of her every day. I'd live to see her at night. The depiction of Charles and Ella's relationship on escape comes into sharper focus when we expand our scope to include a remarkable musical adaptation of Collier's story that was made for television. ABC Stage 67 broadcasts an adaptation of Evening Primrose in 1966 with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and starring Anthony Perkins and Charmian Carr as Charles and Ella. Shot in New York's Stern Brothers department store, the show has a vivid sense of place. This is especially true in the opening scenes when Charles is hiding in the department store during closing time in order to start his new life. The TV adaptation develops the story's thematic confusion of natural and human environments through a great visual motif likely inspired by the vivarium passage in Collier's story. In several shots, a group of what appear to be department store mannequins suddenly begin to move. Excuse me. We didn't notice that within the group were living actors. This motif is repeated several times, prompting us to scan the tableau and anticipate which immobile figures will come to life. The soundtrack to the show also functions to confuse natural and consumer spaces. When Ella sings the song, I Remember... Her understanding of the world beyond Bracy's is expressed in terms of the consumer environments that she's known since she was a child. The sky is blue as ink. Snow is coming down like lint. Ice is like vinyl. Leaves are green as spearmint and crisp as paper. And trees are bare as coat racks and spread like broken umbrellas. In Collier's story, Snell constructs a fake nature scene in the store for one of their secret rendezvous, with a fern from the florist's shop and a sandy-colored carpet for a lakeside beach. On the ABC TV show, Snell adds a sonic dimension to the illusion with a portable record player that plays the sounds of nature. It's at this point in the narrative that the radio and television adaptations diverge in their treatment of the central couple. In the television production, Ella and Charles are depicted as star-crossed lovers who struggle against the repressive attitudes of the colony, a move that better fits the conventions of the musical. In both Collier's short story and the Escape version, however, the love story is not so conventional. On Escape, Snell declares his love to Ella and suggests that they get married and live together in his home in the carpet department. Ella, however, confesses that while she's grateful for all the kindness that Charles has shown to her, she doesn't share his romantic feelings. In fact, she's passionately in love with the The night watchman. I love him. He smells of the sun, she swoons.
5: I was careless and there he was coming around the corner in the ladies' lingerie department. I was caught. There were only some wax models in their underthings. There was nothing else to do. I slipped off my dress and stood still. Oh, see. He stopped and looked at me and Charles, he spoke to me.
1: The frankness of this audio nude scene reminds us that nighttime radio shows like escape could contain some pretty adult material. And it also develops the contrast between the indoor queer inhabitants of Bracey's and Ella's fantasies about a more natural or vital world outside. Meanwhile, Charles is overcome with jealousy and his heartbreak only intensifies when Ella insinuates that she finds him as unnerving as the other nocturnal creatures in the store. You You really belong belong here, here. she says. You've You've become become one one of of them now. now. Snell is reeling from his disappointment when Roscoe emerges from the darkness where he's been eavesdropping on the end of their conversation.
0: Oh, love can be very upsetting, can't it? You heard? Yes, just the last moment or so. Very touching. Hmm. Yet it's understandable. I've been attracted to Ella myself. So she loves another, hmm? Too bad, old boy. Who could it be? Could it be that... I am the cause of your heartbreak. You flatter yourself too much, Roscoe. Well, then whom? She loves the night watchman. Can you imagine that? She loves the... Oh? Roscoe, I shouldn't have said that. It, it's not true. At least, I don't think it's true. You wouldn't... Roscoe, you said you loved her too. You wouldn't do anything. Tell anybody. This is a secret between us. Between friends, isn't it?
4: Of course, old man.
0: As secret as the grave.
1: In a panic, Snell looks for Ella and is horrified to see a group of mysterious figures carrying her into the butcher shop. It's the Dark Men. Wait a minute.
0: What is that? What are those people carrying? That's Ella. She's tied up. They're carrying... Ella! Ella! Stop Charles, it, Charles. Stop it. Oh, go. No, bingo. stop, Charles. Stop it. You'll arouse the night watchman. No, they're... They're taking her in... into the butcher shop. Let's go. Yes. Those are the dark men. Midnight. I'm scribbling this last entry hurriedly. They are in there in the butcher shop, with Ella. The Dark man. There's only one thing to do. I'm going to find the night watchman and tell him. He and I will save her, if we can. And if we are overpowered, well, I will leave this pad on the stationary counter. Tomorrow, if I live, I will recover it. If I do not, Whoever finds this and reads it, look in the store windows. Look for three new wax dummies. Two men, one rather sensitive looking, and a girl. She has blonde hair and blue eyes, and her nose turns up a little.
1: Look for us. Collier's short story ends ambiguously with Snell's last journal entry. The ABC television adaptation makes the outcome clear by ending with shots of the lead actors posed as mannequins in the department store window. Escape takes another approach by returning to the frame story where Sam is reading Snell's final journal entry.
3: Terminate them.
1: Avenge us.
3: Oh, Sam,
2: isn't it horrible? Ah we we got to do something. Tell somebody something. Oh, Sam, what'll we do?
3: Do? Well, Nothing. Go to bed. But Sam... Well, whoever wrote this has sure got a weird sense of humor. It's probably some clerk down at Bracey's who ought to be fired. But...
2: You... You mean you, you think it's just a story? Are you kidding?
3: You don't believe this stuff, do you?
2: Well, well I don't know. I, I, I oh, just...
3: Oh, forget it, baby. Come on, snap out of it. I shouldn't leave you alone. You get too many ideas when I go out bowling at night.
2: But, uh... Don't you think maybe we
3: ought to just, uh... take it back and show somebody? Oh, nuts. It's not worth the bother. They'd laugh at you, baby. They'd think you were crazy or something.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're right. I guess I was silly.
3: Forget it. Oh, come on. Let's go to bed. I'm tired.
2: Okay. Okay, Sam. Gee, you know, there for a while I sure was scared. <laughs> oh, I even forgot what I was going to tell you. Sam, I found the cutest dress today. Only 1995. Yeah, baby? Yeah. It was in the window at Bracey's. It was on a beautiful little wax model with blonde hair, blue eyes, and a turned-up nose, and there were. Two men standing beside...
1: Escape's frame story, like the final shots of the television broadcast, functions to provide a sense of closure, confirming the fate of Ella, Snell, and the Watchmen. But notice how it brings something new to the story as well. With Sadie and Sam, we find the seeds of a whole other story, one about a consumer who discovers something dangerous happening at the department store and her thwarted attempts to make that risk known. We're listening to one of the sound artist Christina Kubisch's electrical walks. Remember from the last episode of my podcast, that Kubish's work is a good accompaniment for Escape's indoor adventures because of the way it prompts us to listen to the everyday environment in a new way. Escape's frame story about Sam and Sadie nudges the story even further into the domain of toxic discourse. And that move along with the pungent aroma of formaldehyde that saturates the show, makes Escape's version of Evening Primrose speak to a rising concern about indoor air pollution during the post-war era. Formaldehyde became associated with toxic risk in the 1970s, with a controversy over formaldehyde-based foam insulation.
0: Marjorie and Bob McGlue insulated their home with urea formaldehyde last February. They have since moved out and rented another house at additional expense, saying Mrs. McGlue's health could not withstand exposure to the formaldehyde fumes.
5: I collapsed on the couch and waited for Bob to come out of the shower. I just didn't have strength enough to, to, um, to continue living anymore. That's really how I felt. I was aware that there was something very radically wrong with my body. I was a very tired and cold and weak. After
0: hospitalization, Mrs. McClue's condition was diagnosed as having been caused by a sensitivity to formaldehyde fumes coming from the insulation in the walls of their house.
1: Ironically, the use of this foam insulation was a response to energy conservation. Airtight construction and heavy insulation reduced heating and cooling expenses. But these tighter buildings also trapped noxious fumes inside.
0: Since the energy crunch of the early 70s, many homes and offices have been made skin-tight, outside air restricted to save heating and cooling costs. Inside, noxious pollutants build up from cigarette smoke, from chemicals in furniture, drapes, copying machines,
1: carpeting. By the 1980s, concern was rising about the problem of indoor air pollution.
0: Americans are now spending as much as 90% of our time indoors, many of us behind the sleek lines of energy-efficient skyscrapers and airtight office buildings. And increasingly, it may be making us sick.
1: Formaldehyde was often singled out as one of the most worrisome pollutants, and inhaling its fumes could cause...
0: Nosebleeds, eye irritation, coughing, asthma, nausea, and vomiting. Federal agencies, including the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, have found it to be carcinogenic as well.
1: Formaldehyde has been back in the headlines again in recent years. It's another blow for victims of Hurricane Katrina. They're being urged to move out of their
4: government-issued
1: trailers after tests found toxic levels of formaldehyde fumes. People living in the FEMA trailers suffered from rashes, fatigue, burning eyes, and breathing problems. The history of concern about formaldehyde in domestic and consumer spaces connects the time of Escape's first broadcast of Evening Primrose with our own moment a half century later. Hearing the toxic overtones in Evening Primrose makes us better appreciate John Collier's decision to transpose the beachcomber social type to the indoor spaces of the department store. Unlike the television pilot for the beachcomber, Evening Primrose promises no ocean liner to a last frontier or an unspoiled wilderness. And it's this sense of total enclosure in a toxic consumer environment that makes the story so resonant with our own historical moment. A time when, as one scholar put it, toxicity is already here, already a truth of nearly all of our bodies. as a sonic figure for this sense of immersion in a toxic consumer environment. What we're listening to now is an example of Mallsoft, a recent genre of electronic music that simulates the experience of moving through the shopping malls of a previous era. From an environmental perspective, Mallsoft can have a certain critical bite, suggesting that it's the soundtrack to our toxic Hyperconsumerist habitat. Throughout this series, I've been pairing studio-based episodes of Escape with field recordings to bring two eras of sound work into dialogue. I like to think of Mallsoft as a kind of ironic, self-aware field recording, with the field located in consumer spaces, not natural ones. Hearing Mallsoft as a kind of environmental field recording troubles traditional understandings of nature and environment. And that's also a goal of the field of queer ecology, which aims to disrupt assumptions about nature, sexuality, and environmental politics. With the agenda of queer ecology in mind, we might return to the nocturnal colony at Bracey's. This community can be appreciated as a figure for what Donna Haraway calls the Cthulhu scene, her variation on the idea of the Anthropocene. The Cthulhu scene names the precarious era we inhabit, but Haraway stresses the need to develop multi-species justice and collaborative kinship with non-humans. Here's where Haraway overlaps with the project of queer ecology to think about kinship outside of the sphere of the heteronormative family. Haraway's slogan for the Cthulhu scene is make kin, not babies. As figures for the Cthulhu scene, Haraway refers to the tentacular ones. Beings that have tentacles, feelers, digits and spider legs who can connect us to the earth. The tentacular aspects of the colony at Bracey's are revealed through contrast with Ella, who Snell describes as a mermaid among the polyps. Remember, too, how the colony's shadowy matriarch, Mrs. Vanderpant, is depicted as an ancient spider scuttling across the walls of the dark, cavernous department store. These dimensions of evening primrose are best appreciated in the medium of radio. Radio is well-suited to a story that takes place in the midnight dimness of a dark department store, and radio's theater of the mind allows the inhabitants of Bracey's to become truly more than human. By contrast, Roscoe and Mrs. Vanderpant, as depicted on ABC Stage 67, come across as aging character actors, not tentacular beings. On escape, Mrs. Vanderpant becomes an incarnation of Medusa, the mythical figure that Haraway takes as an archetype of the Cthulhu scene. After all, Mrs. Vanderpant, like Medusa, controls the power to turn men into stone via the toxic magic of the Dark Men. Haraway wonders What might have happened to those men had they known how to politely greet beings like Medusa? Similarly, I wonder what might have become of Charles Snell had he not become so consumed by desire for the little mermaid, Ella. What crucial information about survival in a toxic world Did he miss when he left Mrs. Bilby's play, Love in Shadowland? Given more time, might he have come to a deeper appreciation of the tentacular, multi-generational, queer community at Bracey's? Did he misunderstand the point Ella was trying to make when she told him, you really belong here. You've become one of them now. SC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich.edu slash p ESC. Thanks for listening.